Thanks for the holy one. That's very nice. Thank you, Bethany and Gerald. If you would, please open your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 1. We're going to finish chapter 1 today. Looking again at Zechariah's prophecy. As you turn there, uh, we also need to remember Pastor Weiler and his family in prayer. They will be leaving uh, for a little vacation and some ministry. Uh, over the next couple of weeks, they're going to be going up to Georgia, car trip, and then he'll be with his family uh, doing their vacation Bible schools. He does virtually every year, and he does that with them, so he brings that same program back and prepares for our vacation Bible school that we'll have in July. So we want to remember to pray for Gerald. Should be a good trip, Gerald. I set you up. I was talking to Bryson beforehand. If you don't know Bryson, he's about that tall, and I said, so where are you going? It was Papa's house, which is their grandpa up in Georgia. And uh, I said, it's going to be a good trip. You're leaving right after church. Yeah, I said, oh, and you're going to be quiet and sleep the whole way, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> Hold him to it, Gerald. Hold him to it. Well, last week we were studying this prophecy of Zacharias. We were also discussing the nature of biblical prophecy. And uh, we learned a few things about prophecy. We learned... First, that prophecy is God speaking forth. It's God's spoken word. Some types of prophecy were, were delivered direct as God spoke to Moses directly. That was prophetic revelation. Other times, uh, God spoke to his people through a representative. The, we, we call that a prophet, right? A direct representative. And, and of course, that, was, that prophet was always validated through a miracle, a sign, or a wonder, we learn. Another way that God has spoken to his people is through written prophecy. Written prophecy. Uh, It arrives through a human representative or writer. He's guided by the Holy Spirit to write down God's words on paper. So such prophecy is called Scripture. Scripture has been provided by God as a medium to us uh, so that his word can be passed down to subsequent subsequent generations, without having to rely on us, the word of mouth, or the accuracy of what we heard or remembered, it is preserved. The whole entire book of the Bible is scriptural prophecy. It is God speaking forth. It's being recorded on paper. 1 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is God-breathed. Christ himself repeatedly categorized scripture as being completely authoritative and reliable. And then, you probably remember last week I read to you 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. It's a very important passage. Peter writes, We have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. What he's saying there, that, that Greek word means the writer didn't make it up. It wasn't his interpretation. It wasn't, it wasn't something he came up with. And then he clarifies saying, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's how we got Scripture. I also noted The prophecy sometimes contains a future prediction, but the idea of prophecy being only a prediction, 
only a prediction of a future event, apart from God speaking in any way, that's not biblical. That is not Christian. That's something more modern. We see that a lot today. A a prophecy only for the sake of a prediction is superstition. It's like reading a horoscope, trying to get an edge on tomorrow, what it might hold. It's also wise to recognize that predictions, as we know them, they're very different from prophecy, from God speaking. Predictions, we all know well, they can be calculated at some point, right? They, they can also be right some of the time. Boeing can predict, by observation, what the date that its latest generation aircraft might fly with passengers. All they have to do is observe data, look things over and project or predict when that plane might fly, might be certified. A fortune teller may be able to observe obvious characteristics about you. Things about you personally, as they talk to you, as they look at you. They might see that you appear athletic. They, they might notice that you're very attractive. Any number of things. And, and then they might suggest to you charming words that they perceive might make you feel good about yourself concerning those things. They, 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 they think what, they come to a conclusion what they think you want to hear about your future. Some of these are very cunning. Very sharp people. Uh, If they detect you're attractive and vain, they might tell you that they envision a modeling contract for you in the future. In in fact, a, a person, an individual who's had a fortune told them, might even pursue, at some level, even actualize such a prediction due to the appeal, or, or what sometimes we say, the power of that fortune teller's suggestion. They might pursue it, actually, uh, but fortune tellers, they don't actually know the future. Instead, they give generalized predictions based only on current observation. One other thing, in addition, since Scripture assures us that there are myriads of evil spirits out there, myriads of them in the world, a demonically influenced fortune teller may even possess an acute awareness of personal ambitions that you've verbally shared with someone else, uh, that you've expressed to friends, things that you've researched on the internet, even what you've written in your private journal. So, um, demonic spirits don't know the future. Only God is omniscient, but they know a lot. They know a lot. They uh, can only predict, though, what the future might hold based on what they have observed about you. And they, too, might get a prediction or part of a prediction right some of the time. But only God knows the future. Only God knows the future. And this is why Scripture assures us that a true prophet of God is both specific and accurate 100% of the time. A prophet speaking on behalf of God is never wrong. This is why a false prophet who speaks inaccurately according to Deuteronomy 18 verses 20 to 22 He doesn't get second chances, right? They were immediately to put him to death. By the way, that ought to discourage any of us from trying to mess around and, you know, see if we have the gift of prophecy and say, well, you know what, I'm just going to throw a few predictions out there for the church to see if they might happen. You don't ever want to be wrong on a prediction. Not even once. Who would test that? Yet people do. Yet people do. 
I bring this up again, folks, not because this passage in, in, in Luke is, is all about prophecy. It, it isn't. But it is a prophecy, and, and we do not get to discuss the nature of prophecy often enough. There are lots of false notions out there about prophecies and prophetic readings that are leading people astray. So we need to defend our minds, we need to defend our families from nonsense. There are, there are a large number of self-declared prophets, uh, false teachers, even some pastors are out there playing that role of prophet, trying to tell people, th- people things that are charming about them. I've had this happen to myself personally. I'll share it another time. I don't have time today, but I've had people, not by, I didn't solicit them. They solicited me and were going to give me some prophetic readings. Very interesting, very interesting. Um, we need to be careful. Since prophecy is God speaking and not man speaking, it is authoritative. If it contains a prediction, it's always accurate. But there's one other characteristic about prophecy that I would really like you to take home today, to, to kind of tack on to what we talked about last week. It's a characteristic I'd like to show you in this passage has to do with the harmony of prophetic revelation. The harmony of prophetic revelation. I'll begin in verse 67 of Luke chapter 1. Again, John the Baptist is just born. And here Zacharias is speaking forth a prophecy from God. And verse 67 says, And his, meaning John the Baptist, his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation. Remember our scripture reading earlier? God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. Notice again in verse 70. As God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. When a prophet filled with the Holy Spirit, as Zacharias was, as that prophet spoke, and 1 Peter 1.11 tells us that these Old Testament prophets were filled with the Spirit of Christ. When that prophet prophesied, his message was always in complete harmony with the revelation of previous prophets. When speaking on behalf of God, Zacharias recognized there had to be an agreement between what he was declaring forth and that which was spoken by the prophets of God from old. The ones that had been raised up before him. And this principle is sometimes referred to as the the doctrine of continuity. You know, when things have continuity, they need to fit together. And similarly, what pastors preach today from pulpits, it must never contradict what God has prophetically said previously. What he has said in the past. Scripture, when taught correctly, is always in perfect harmony with what was in the past. What was declared before. By comparison, extra-biblical sources of revelation, quote-unquote revelation, whether it be, we've talked before about the Book of Mormon, the Watchtower Society, anything else that came after the close of Revelation chapter 22, Historically, these sources have always conflicted with God's Word. They've always contradicted in some way what God has revealed already. 
And if you will observe, you'll find that, that there are many modern, contemporary, quote-unquote again, prophets who are always creatively kind of making excuses for why what they said doesn't fit the Bible. The prophets that came beforehand. They're, they try to walk their way out of it. One of their favorite verses is Isaiah 43, 18. They might often say, Do not call to mind the former things, or ponder things of the past, Isaiah wrote. Behold, I will do something new, says the Lord. You ever heard that? Don't worry if what I have doesn't match what happened before. Behold, God is doing something new. I always get a bit squeamish whenever I hear that quoted on television. Uh, What they refuse to acknowledge is, in that passage, Isaiah is predicting the second exodus of Israel. Remember, they had to come out of Egypt once, and now Isaiah is saying there's going to be a second exodus. This time it's going to be out of Babylon. You're going to depart captivity from Babylon. Uh, A prophecy of Isaiah, by the way, that in no way contradicted what God had done in the past. You see what I'm saying? It didn't contradict what God had previously said. Perhaps one of the finest professors I ever had the privilege uh, to hear, to sit under, to study under, Dr. Howard Hendricks, who's now gone to be with the Lord, he told his students very profoundly, listen to this, if it is true, it is not new. And if it is new, it is not true. That's a fact. We should observe when Zacharias prophesies concerning the redemption of God's people. In verse 69, he emphasizes a horn of salvation rising up in the house of David. Sound like something old that we just read about 20 minutes ago? Scripture reading. He's suggesting that his prophecy is in complete harmony with the prophecies of the prophets of old who spoke before him. Everything concerning that horn of salvation who we know is the Christ and the gospel that we proclaim today. Everything must maintain complete harmony with the Old Testament. You can reference that in Galatians 1 verse 8. The apostle Paul said, he goes, if anyone preaches to you a gospel other than the one we have preached... He's to be accursed, right? Nothing new, Paul says. Paul also states concerning the gospel, this is good. He's introducing himself to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. This is his letter to the Romans. Paul says, I, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he, meaning God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. See the continuity with what Paul was preaching and the old prophets? What what is he suggesting? He's suggesting the gospel he preaches is in harmony with the declarations of the prophets of old. It isn't something new. Something very old. And they were preserved, uh, these prophecies in the Old Testament Scriptures, if you want to... See how that works out. Go to Acts chapter 17. You're you're familiar with the Bereans, right? And Paul and Silas ended up in Berea because they were persecuted. They had to run on to Berea. And there was a group there in the synagogue. So, So it was a Jewish background. And Paul comes in, Silas with him, and they're preaching the gospel. They're preaching the truths about Christ. And what did the Bereans do? 
They searched the Scriptures daily to see if the things that were spoken to them were true, right? What Scriptures were they searching? Old Testament, right? They didn't have the New Testament yet then. So the Bereans were more noble. They were going back to the Old Testament to see if what Paul was speaking was true. That's affirmative. Everything the prophets of old spoke has been fulfilled through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, What is that gospel or good news promised beforehand by the Old Testament prophets? Luke tells us in uh, verses 69 and 71 of Luke chapter 1, God has promised salvation. He's promised salvation. Paul again to the Romans in chapter 1, this time in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous have always lived by faith. Another thing that isn't new. We find this in Hebrews 11. By faith, Noah built the ark, right? By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, this is really good, Joseph now in Egypt, when he was dying, he gave instructions concerning his bones, right? Because he knew there would be an exodus that would go to the promised land, and he was pretty full aware it was going to be for some odd 400 years. And he said, you know what? I'm giving you instructions for my bones now because in 400 years you're going to be walking out here. Take me with you and bury me in the promised land. So by faith, Joseph did that. Uh, Joseph gave other orders. Um, He was confident in God's promises. They were sure. In Genesis 15, when God made an oath or a covenant with Abraham, God took Abram out at night and he said, look up in the sky. Look at the stars. And he told him, your descendants will be more numerous than these. That was the promise. That was the uh, Abrahamic covenant God promised to Abram. Scripture says in James 2, verse 23, And Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Zacharias' prophecy emphasizes what we desperately need most. It's not a Rolls Royce. It's not a private jet plane. It's not perfect health even. What we need is salvation that was promised in the Abrahamic covenant that his descendants by faith would be more numerous than the stars. That's us. That's us. We are part of the fulfillment of that because we are uh, descendants and heirs of Abraham through faith. Through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. That not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not the result of works. No one's going to boast, we're told. We're saved through faith. There's one other thing we should uh, acknowledge as we continue in Luke here now, chapter 1. We should also recognize that salvation it, it was a broad concept in Scripture. Especially Old Testament. Uh, Most often we evangelicals today, we narrow salvation down to one thing. What is that? Forgiveness of sins, right? Have you been saved? 
And, and, and we narrow it down to, to just that one thing, the deliverance from the penalty of sins. And that is by far the most important aspect of salvation because without that, we're, we're in bad shape, right? You must be saved. You must be born again or else nothing else really matters. But we as Christians today, we could learn a, a thing or two from Israel. Salvation for them included a lot more. It included uh, a sovereign nation, peace from their enemies, a land flowing with milk and honey. See, salvation for Israel was a package deal. It wasn't only the forgiveness of sins. It was a package. It, it impacted their entire, their entire being. If I may use the word, their whole experience changed. In their day, salvation from their enemies, especially crucial, especially crucial for some Christians even today. And indeed, God did promise Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 17, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. Your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. And God's promise to Abram, it's unconditional, it's unilateral. You can read about this in Genesis 15 if you would like, but, but God emphasized this by putting Abram in a deep sleep and then ratifying the covenant by himself. God did. God said, this is dependent on me. You read about that in Genesis 15. But for his physical descendants, Abraham's physical descendants, especially after the law was given at Sinai, the Mosaic law, this full spectrum of salvation, blessing and, and uh, a land flowing of milk and honey and, and safety from their enemies, this whole concept was dependent upon something. Obedience, right Ruth? It was contingent upon obedience. They had to obey the law in order for all these contingencies to be enforced. How did that go? That didn't go so well at all. Can you imagine this? They were disobedient. They were sinful. They were immoral. They were corrupt. They were idolaters. They were greedy. They were unmerciful. They were unloving. They were foolhardy. Their problem didn't reside in the promises that God made. God's covenant promises were firm. They were firm. Their problem resided in their sin. That was their problem. Sin prevented them from experiencing all the benefits of God's covenant to them over the centuries, they were never able to fix that. Couldn't fix it. Although there were admittedly periods, you know, when Israel prospered, they were generally short. They, they never experienced all the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, including salvation from their enemies. Uh, instead, throughout most of their existence, they were dominated by their enemies. There were short periods of reform, such as those under Hezekiah, and there was one point where Josiah uh, found the Word of God, dusted it off, right? 
They looked at it again. There were short periods, glimpses of salvation and the way of peace. But soon sin would engulf them over again. The nation would collapse again. This sounded all like the cycles of our lives. You know, many people you know, run into a ditch, either morally, financially, physically, uh, completely bottom out. For a season, they get up and, and they get to church. If they do really well, maybe they'll do it two weeks in a row. They'll dust off that Bible and say, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps now and we're, we're going to get this right. We're going to do it. We've got these rules and these precepts and all these good things of God, all this good stuff in the Bible, and I'm finally going to get my life straightened out. And then what? All of a sudden, bam. Fall off the wagon again. The fact is, folks, no one has experienced salvation, the promises of God, simply by doing things better themselves. Israel figured this out. They said, we can't do it. We never get this right. We go into captivity. We get defeated by our enemies. It's always wrong. We can never get it right, no matter how hard we try. Because of our sin, we always fail. You know what? They're thinking, somebody stronger than us needs to come in and fix this. Somebody more powerful exactly what the prophets of old had promised them. A horn of salvation. A deliverer, a strong man. A horn in, in those days represented the strength of the largest animals. The horn uh, of an ox. The horn of the large animals. It symbolized strength, power. So, so Israel, they were impatiently waiting for this deliverer to come who would come and save them, especially from their enemies. They really needed to be saved from their enemies. And as we read it, verses 71 through 75, again Luke chapter 1, we see what Zacharias has to say about this deliverer of God. He will provide for Israel, verse 71, salvation from our enemies. Put that high on the list. And from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to Abraham our father to grant us that we, again being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Isn't that what we look forward to? That we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all of our days? That's just what the doctor ordered. We need to be rescued from... Our enemies, we need to have salvation, be delivered from our enemies. In fact, most of Israel thought that the son of David, the Christ, was going to deliver them from Rome, from the oppression that they were experiencing from Rome. And in fact, verse 68 indicates, God has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation. The nation of Israel had been waiting a long time. For centuries they'd been dominated. They wanted to be liberated from their oppression. High taxes, foreign governments, corruption. They wanted their kingdom restored. 
In fact, in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, notice this is even after the resurrection of Christ. The disciples were still asking Jesus, Lord, is it at this time you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Even after the resurrection. Lord, is it now that you're going to save us from this corrupt government? You're going to rescue us from all of our enemies? Is it now you're going to punish those who oppress us? Notice these are the people, these are the disciples that, that, that followed Christ the most closely asking this. They wanted a nation that would be restored to its former glory. They wanted budgets to be balanced. They wanted armies to be strengthened. They wanted wealth to accumulate. In fact, during Christ's earthly ministry, when the crowds were congregating around him and following him, droves of people coming in, once they started getting the impression that restoring the physical nation of Israel wasn't the highest item on Christ's list, once they started getting that impression, many just walked away. Many gave up. Instead of preaching a military build-up, financial prosperity, restored borders, and equality and justice for all, Jesus was saying things to people like, um, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in yourselves. And in John 6.60 we're told, Therefore, many of Jesus' disciples, these were general disciples beyond the twelve, many of Jesus' disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to this? And in verse 66, we're told as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Then Jesus turned to the twelve, saying, you don't want to go away also, also do you? And Peter, speaking for them, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And in the answer to the disciples' earlier question about when that kingdom of Israel was going to be restored, Jesus simply replied, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed on his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Power! And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. The physical nation of Israel never experienced salvation from their enemies in such a way that they were expecting. Instead, in 70 AD, the armies of Rome, they laid siege to Jerusalem. They leveled it. It's where Jesus said, there will not be one stone upon another that will not be broken down, right? In the temple. He predicted that. It came true. And now some 2,000 years later, nearly 2,000 years later, how could Zacharias's prophecy that God's people would be rescued be fulfilled? You know, some would imagine uh, or might suggest that this must have some kind of future fulfillment yet. And indeed, there, there are future fulfillments for Israel yet, some in the future. I don't think Zacharias, though, is speaking or implying that deliverance from enemies is coming in a couple thousand years. 
I don't think that's what he's talking about here for Israel. Uh, He implies redemption is already accomplished, right? He, He turns from describing the covenant promises of God now to the role of his son, who he's kind of dedicating with this prophecy, right? John the Baptist, eight days old, he turns to him. And it talks about the role that he's going to play in all of this. Remember, this is one prophecy. has to be interpreted together. And in verse 76, Zechariah says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which... The sunrise from on high will visit us. Sound like Psalm 132 again? The sun will shine. To shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. You know, the thrust of Zechariah's prophecy isn't merely God's covenant promises made to Abraham. That's part of it. But his prophecy is about how this has all been fulfilled to the descendants of Abraham, the house of David. And in verse 76, we're told, you know, John is a prophet of the Most High, right? But Luke reminded us back in verse 32 that Jesus is the Son of the Most High. This prophecy concerns redemption and salvation through the horn, through Christ. John the Baptist's role is to go ahead, prepare the way for him, prepare people to receive him, and John will prepare the way for the Lord. In doing so, he will, verse 77, provide God's people the knowledge of salvation consisting in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. You know, this word salvation here, you look at verse 69, 71, and then down in 77, it's all the same word. It's not talking about a different salvation. It's a package deal, folks. It's all describing the same offer of salvation. It comes through the, through the knowledge of the forgiveness of sins. And the way which we are rescued from our enemies, it's not by a military coup. It's not by any political means or against Rome or a protest or through a renewed economy. We don't get rescued from our enemies by conquering them. The way that we're rescued in verse 74 is through serving God without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all of our days. Remember what I read from you in 1 Peter chapter 1? Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but as bond slaves of God. Goodness, righteousness, salvation, virtue, we had in one of the songs. This type of salvation that's being talked about, it comes through faith. It's the same faith of Moses who stood up against Pharaoh and the armies of Pharaoh. It's the same faith that Noah had when he endured the mockings of people. It's the type of salvation through faith that strengthens us, verse 74, to serve God without fear in the presence of our enemies. We do so in righteousness and holiness. 
the way that we receive the courage to serve God without being paralyzed in fear of everything that is going around on around us is, is by the knowledge of salvation consisting in the forgiveness of our sins. Remember we talked about that earlier. That's the most important component, right? That Christ bore our sins on the cross. That he rose again on the third day. We are reconciled to God. And if we've been saved from our sins, there remains nothing to fear from our enemies. In fact, we've been granted, verse 71, salvation from them and from the hand who all, who, of all who hate us. Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who will kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear God who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Psalm 118, verse 6, The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Answer, nothing. Not if you're saved. Hebrews 13, 6. Again, back to Hebrews. The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember those who led you, the writer of Hebrews says, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. How would any of these verses to not have fear have any meaning if it weren't for salvation from sins? In fact, the same writer of Hebrews, while telling God's people to remember those who had spoken the word of God before you, he's talking about prophets, apostles, evangelists. Remember them, imitate their faith, he says. Again, this is in Hebrews 13. At the same time, he reminds people to consider the result of of their conduct. What was the result of their holy and righteous conduct as apostles and prophets who served God without fear? What was the result? The writer of Hebrews tells us, chapter 11, those like Moses experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with a sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world is not worthy, wandering in the deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. What was the result of their conduct? That's it. And this prophecy of Zacharias is in complete harmony with the prophets of old who had come before. God's promise of salvation, it's not experienced through a conquest. He said, writer of Hebrews says, remember those who'd gone before. That was not the way for the prophets or the apostles. Christ's apostles, all but one died for their faith, yet they were holy and righteous. They served without fear of their enemies. Same with the prophets some of whom, or at least one, was sawn in two. The same is for his church, or the greatest part of the history of Christ's church. Salvation comes through the horn that arises out of David. He's the one of whom the Holy Spirit spoke long ago, the Christ. He's the strong man. He's the one who has delivered us. He is the one who saved us from our sins. Listen to 1 Peter 1, verse 10. I quoted this earlier. 
as Peter describes the role of the Old Testament prophets as, as it regards to salvation in Christ. There, there was a component of mystery. But listen to this. Peter says, As to this salvation, the salvation in Christ, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as God predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Again, Old Testament prophets predicting the sufferings of Christ. Harmony, continuity. It was revealed to them, meaning the Old Testament prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which are now announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Zacharias isn't preaching anything new. He's simply reminding us to courageously serve God. The power is in the horn of salvation, not in us. We can serve God in in holiness and righteousness even in the face of our enemies. Why? Because we've already been delivered from our enemies through Christ. What we want is just to be delivered right here and now from any trouble. That's not, what he's, that's not what he's suggesting. You could never look at the Bible, at the scriptures, at Hebrews chapter 11, or the history of the church and come to that conclusion as an interpretation to this. What would motivate Christians in a hostile country to join a caravan of buses and vehicles to go 150 miles to pray at a monastery when there are people who want to kill them, that want to shoot up their bus, why would they go? We all know as Christians, right, where you pray doesn't matter. Location doesn't matter. Why not just stay home where it would be safe? Why getting shot, risk getting shot up in a bus with 28 other people who died just a couple days ago? Why would you go to church on a Palm Sunday and worship when you realize there are threats and there are enemies out there who hate you, who are threatening to bomb your sanctuary and blow it up? Why would you do that? And I can only imagine our brothers and sisters in Egypt saying things like, because we preach Christ and Him crucified. That's why we do it. We do not fear. What can man do to me? As the prophet Zacharias once said, they might add, they might ask you, have you read uh, the prophecy of Zacharias? God's already accomplished redemption and salvation. That's already done. He provided salvation, Scripture tells us, from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. We don't fear anything. Christians have nothing to fear. Well then, what shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies Who is the one who condemns? 
Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or famine or persecution or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are putting to, being put to death all day long, we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, Paul writes. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Folks, we have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Christians in Egypt, they have nothing to fear either. We've got a horn of salvation who died for us on the cross. What can man do to us? We need only serve God and share the gospel and live our lives in holiness and righteousness all of our days and continue serving him all the more until the day of his return draws near. That's it. That's our duty. That's our call. That's Zechariah's prophecy. He wraps up his birth narrative here of John concluding, and the, and the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And we'll talk about that more in chapter 3 when we get beyond uh, Christ and the birth of Christ. Let's pray.